By the summer of 1991, I had graduated from Montana State University with a philosophy degree. You can laugh now. (laughs) I'd graduated with a philosophy degree, and it was time to leave Montana. So I did what any thinking 23-year-old would do. I packed my few meager belongings in that beat-up old Toyota Tercel, blue, faded. And I drove out of the state of Montana toward Portland, Oregon. The joke in those days was that everybody young from Montana was moving to Seattle and that Seattle was full, so Portland was next. There might have been a little bit of truth to that. You see, Montana is a beautiful place. But it's not a place with many good jobs. It wasn't certainly a place where I saw a future for myself. I wasn't going to work in agriculture. I had a philosophy degree. What else would I need? So I drove that old blue Toyota Tercel, loaded with all of my worldly belongings, across to hot eastern Washington. I broke down once fuel pump or something like that, went out. Tearful, hot, frustrated call to my father. He talked me through the problem. We had somebody tow the car. Spent the night in some ratty little hotel there in Connell, Washington. Car was ready to go on the next day, and on I went. I was moving to Portland, Oregon with no money, no job, no apartment, and only a couple of friends who had preceded me there. But when you're 23 years old and armed with a philosophy degree, (laughs) it's about all you need to start your life, right? (laughs) I knew I could do something, right? So after a couple of nights on sleeping on one of my friend's sofas, I'd walked enough neighborhoods in Portland, Oregon to find the one I wanted to live in. I had talked some sympathetic landlord into uh, renting me this sort of windowless studio apartment across from the grocery store. It wasn't too expensive in those days, and they were kind enough to only require a $100 security deposit. I moved in there and began life. I got my first job out of college at a drive through espresso bar. Yep, making coffee drinks. Started about, we had to get at the espresso place by about 5 a.m. because there was always a line by 5.30 when we opened. And the line would be there of cars going through all day long. So I simply made espresso drinks for a full eight-hour shift and went home and took a shower and went on with the rest of my life and the rest of my day. Of course, we know that the best way to get a better job is to have a job you don't like very much. (laughs) So that worked pretty well. I cashed that job in after about six months for one working for the American Friends Service Committee, the Quakers. I was one of their project assistants. I think I was probably a glorified secretary, but they were kind to me there, and they were doing interesting things. They were changing the world, and here was an organization that fit, at least with the principles that I had been raised with, 
and yet had a very different way of going about things in the world. I learned a lot from working with the Quakers. But just in the same way that uh, Montana no longer fit me very well, I was really clear that Presbyterianism didn't fit me very well either. It was fine to grow up in that little church in Deer Lodge, Montana, where I was known by everyone and knew everyone. The college church that I went to was equally welcoming, but I was starting to feel myself shift away from that particular theology, and I felt the church of my childhood was shifting the other way as well. I want to chalk much of this up to just natural rebellion. You know, kids are not necessarily going to stick with the religion they were raised. You've got to do something, right, as a kid to rebel. And I think having been the really good kid, the good student, the one that never goofed off, the one that never got in trouble, that I needed to do some rebelling of my own. And what I found was that the theology seemed too narrow for me. Looking back on it, I probably could have explored that theology in much greater depth and found it more expansive, but I was in a mood to reject things. I was in the mood to reject that farming life. I was in a mood to reject Montana. Heck, I was 23, and I was living across from the grocery store, and I was slinging espresso. There had to be other good things headed my way, right? (laughs) Couple that with the ongoing fights in those days in the Presbyterian Church. They'd only just recently said it was okay for women to be ordained, and that was a big deal. The fights in those days, in 1991 and 1992, were around whether gay and lesbian people could even be part of the church, let alone be clergy. And even though the church that I'd attended during college was clear that it was fine and it was open and it was happy for my leadership, I wasn't sitting well with the larger denomination and I wasn't enjoying the fights. And if you think these fights are over in Christianity, they are not. The Methodists are about to split clean down the middle over this very issue. The fights are not over. And I didn't want to fight You know, I wanted a theology that was more expansive than the one I had found. I wanted a church that was going to wrestle with things other than whether somebody could be accepted or not. I was looking for a religion that was thoughtful and deliberate and kind and prophetic. So when I moved to Portland, Oregon, I decided that I'd I'd check out three different things. I thought, well, I'd heard about these, this UCC thing, this United Church of Christ. They seem pretty liberal. I'd check them out. I'd check out the Quakers, but I didn't know if silent worship was my thing or not. And I'd, I'd check out this thing called Unitarianism. I had a professor in college, a philosoph- one of those philosophy professors, who was a Unitarian, and he would say this occasionally, and I had no idea what he was talking about. And so I thought, well, may as well get the weirdest one over first, right? (laughs) I may as well go check out this Unitarian thing, because there's surely, there's nothing to it. And, you know, it'll just be one Sunday, and then we can just move on to the the UCC or the Quakers. And so I figured out where the the nearest UU church was, and I 
knew it started at 11 o'clock, and I thought, well, fine, I'll, I'll show up there and I'll, I'll see how bad it's going to be. And I did, and I was overdressed. <laughs> and they were in transition. Their minister had left, and they had an interim minister. And she was a woman, and I'd never seen that before. And here was this congregation, mostly white, mostly older, but doing the kinds of things that I was used to a church doing, actually smiling at a new visitor, actually singing pretty well on the hymns, actually keeping silence, praying when that was necessary, and actually listening to this lady minister. Well, it was Joyce Smith who was up there, and I ran into her some years later at a general assembly, and I had the chance to thank her for what she'd done. She had no idea what she'd done. She was well into her 60s by then, and she was just doing a couple of interims to kind of finish up her career and to be done. She'd come to ministry late in life, and she'd done a good job at a couple of churches and was kind of moving toward retirement. She had no idea that simply standing up there in that pulpit and preaching what was on her mind, being brave enough to talk about some current affairs, being brave enough to shake hands with this 23-year-old overdressed young man, was enough to make me come back the next week. Church studies say that you've got about 15 to 20 minutes with a new person, They're going to feel whether they're welcome in a congregation or not. They're going to feel whether there's space for them there. And I felt there was enough space there for me. I, of course, was quite sure that this was a one-off, that they were just nice that Sunday and they would be just awful, dreadful the next Sunday. Or they were going to say something that was reactionary, something that didn't fit with my politics, something that certainly didn't fit with this new rebellious streak I had going. But I went back. It was okay the second time. And then it was okay the third time. And the fourth and the fifth time. And I thought, well, I'm never going to get to the UCC and the Quakers at this rate. And I didn't. I stayed there. This was First Unitarian Church of Portland, Oregon, sitting right downtown, looking as formal and lovely as this very church that we sit in, a church that had been prophetic enough to quietly buy up the whole city block that it lived on, but not for its own gain. It bought the city block that it lived on because it was running a homeless shelter for teenagers. It was running a battered women's shelter. It was providing space for folks to meet who could not find space anywhere else, even in that liberal city. It was a church that had decided that it was going to let its light shine, that its doors were going to be open, that it was going to proclaim who it was, and it didn't care who agreed with them or it didn't agree with them. They were going to do some things that fit with their values. That's what you could feel. That's what you could feel when you went into that place. Here was a church that was alive and was engaged. 
the funny thing about that church was they didn't care if I was gay or not. They wanted to know if I wanted to be on the finance committee. I said, I've got no experience with the finance committee. What are you doing asking me if I want to be on the finance committee? Don't you have like a gay rights group or something? Well, no, they didn't. Um, but they had an opening on the finance committee. I said, I got a philosophy degree. I don't know if that's, that's, that's going to be much help or not. What I discovered was this church was interested in me as who I was, and any kinds of labels didn't really matter. They wanted me to be happy serving wherever I wanted to. And finding that church, I would realize, would become such a source of solace and strength, such a grounding for the next four years of my life. Because what was happening was, as Election Day in November 1992 was drawing closer, there were some very vicious ballot measures on the Oregon ballot that year. Now, Oregon's one of these great states that has probably a little more democracy than they should. <laughs> and so any blameful citizen with enough signatures can get any blameful thing on the ballot. No filter. And so there was this very hateful group that was quite sure that gay people were getting all kinds of special rights that they hadn't gotten, and they wanted to put a stop to that. And they got in a ballot measure on the ballot. And what ensued was a vicious war, a war between liberal and conservative values, a war between urbanites and country folks, a war about whether the state of Oregon was going to go in a reactionary direction or whether it was going to be progressive. And what I realized was that without a church, I was not going to weather those storms very well. And without a church that was interested in speaking up for people like me, I wasn't going to be happy in that church for very long. The lucky thing was that Marilyn Sewell had come to be the minister that year. Any of you who were at my installation saw her preach from this very pulpit. She'd come to lead that church, and though she might have been quaking in her boots, she didn't show it. And she decided that we were going to do something about this hate-filled rhetoric. She decided that what we should do is we should wrap the entire city block with a red ribbon. And we should declare it a hate-free zone. Simple thing, right? And genius. The media was all over it. We did it. I remember the very day that we did it. It was more red ribbon than you've ever seen in your life because it was a whole city block. And we spent hours putting it up on the buildings, clear around down one street and down another street until the whole thing was wrapped. And then there were these signs that were placed so you could see them, five or six on each street, that said, hate-free zone. That next Sunday, you couldn't get in the church because the crowd was so big. You couldn't get in the church. The pews were gone an hour before the service started. People lined the walls, and they had to set up speakers on the front steps of the church so that people could hear the service 
as they stood on the steps and gathered on the sidewalk in front. Here was a church that was brave and prophetic. Here was a religion that fit who I was becoming. The other thing that was happening was that I had come to Portland, Oregon to get away from a call to ministry. I'd come to see if I could try my hand at nonprofit work, to see if I could duck this persistent call that had bothered me and pestered me since I was 13 or 14. Surely if I switched religions, they wouldn't realize that there was anything that had happened before, right? Surely if I switched cities, you know, this wouldn't catch up to me. Surely if I had some other work that I was doing that was engaging and was prophetic and did all this stuff that I wouldn't actually have to go into ministry, for heaven's sakes. Because the thing I realized was, given the current climate, ministry was not going to be easy. Seminary might be enjoyable, but then the actual practice of ministry for somebody like me was going to be pretty tough. There were still battles being waged. There were still doors that were shut and locked. But here I'd stumbled across this crazy thing called Unitarianism and this crazy church that did far-out things like wrap itself with a red ribbon. And slowly and persistently, over the four years that I was there, that call to ministry got louder and louder, more and more persistent, more and more annoying, until it would not let me be. And after four years as a Unitarian Universalist, which is not much time, frankly, if you're going to go into ministry, after four years at that church, the only UU church I had ever experienced in my life, I was ready to start looking around at seminaries. On a trip back here, I looked at Harvard and Andover-Newton. Took a couple of trips down to Berkeley, California, and looked at Star King School for the ministry. Went to Chicago and looked at Meadville Lombard. And each of these places, while quite very different, I experienced the sense not that I was shifting into something new, but that I was going deeper into something, a path I was already on. And I chose Star King School for the ministry mostly because it scared me to death. It wanted to train me in ways that I didn't really want to be trained. I had a philosophy degree, remember? Pretty heady guy. I can think, I can write, I can use big words, I can figure out analytical things. Star King said, yeah, it's nice that you can think, but can you feel? Farm kids from Montana don't talk about feelings. Farm kids raised in Presbyterian churches in Montana don't talk about feelings. Working class kids ain't got no idea what you're talking about when you ask them how they feel. So Star King scared me to death. It was the one place that I knew that they were not going to let me slide. They were not going to let me just get away with being smart or being clever. 
that they were, in fact, going to ask me to go deeper in myself in a way that if I could not do that, I had no business in ministry. So that school, the very place that Jan's been, she can tell you stories about it too, opened me up in a way that I am so grateful for. It was the first place I'd ever had some therapy. What's therapy to a farm kid, right? You're just flushing $100 bills down a toilet. (laughs) It was the first place that I'd been asked to lead worship in a way that was not from a high place, but from a connected with place. It's the first time in my life that I'd really experienced folks from a variety of different backgrounds with a variety of theologies who were all interested in not how those theologies argued with each other, but how they talked with each other, how they were in conversation with each other. So I went to Star King. Didn't have any money there either. Got a great education there. Had three years living in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is a marvel unto itself. And then went out into the world. But the point I'm trying to make is that we all come to things in our lives that ruin us for the rest of our lives. Things that wake us up to something deep inside. Things that say, I don't care what path you've been on, but if you really want to live, go this way. In some ways, it was that church, that first Unitarian church in Portland, Oregon, that ruined me for the rest of my life. Ruined me in the best possible way. You see, if it hadn't been for that church... I might still be living in Portland, Oregon right now. I might still be working for the Quakers. Heck, I might be selling real estate. (laughs) If it weren't for that church, I wouldn't have looked at four or five seminaries. If it hadn't been for that church and its minister who had also gone to Star King, I wouldn't have known how frightening Star King was. And I wouldn't have settled on it as the place to study. If it weren't for that church and its particularities, I don't know if I would have been able to serve the three churches that I've served before coming to you. If it weren't for the way that that church ruined my life, I wouldn't be standing here in front of you this morning. If we're lucky in this life, we keep outgrowing our old selves. If we're lucky in this life, there will be people who point a finger in a direction that we didn't even really think about. If we're lucky in this life, we will be embraced by institutions that see us as we are and see us as we might be, that see things in us that we don't necessarily see ourselves and that won't settle for letting us slack off or be less than we might be or to just take the easy path. Because life carries us forward, always forward. It's like that poem said, we wish to go back, we wish to turn around, we wish to pause, we wish to stop. But life carries us forward, each and every one of us, each and every day.
And there is beauty, great beauty, in being able to accept those changes, being able to say, I'm done with that now. As imperfect as it was, I'm on to this next thing. There's wisdom always of following the voice within, of having your ears open and your eyes open, and being ready for whatever is next. We choose in ways large and small, each and every day. In this we are not alone. In this way we live our lives. It is a great blessing and a great honor be given this life, and to do with it as we might. So be it. Amen.